today on Geekdomine Powers. Um, we watch Star Trek every Wednesday as it comes out mm-hmm. at the original airtime with original commercials in it. Um, oh, how, how are you doing that? Uh, it's a lot of work, <laughs> but every week I, I assemble it. Um, and we even have the shows that came before and after it. Right now it's Daniel Boone and Dragnet 67. Um, and so some people watch it online uh, through Discord. And then we actually have about a dozen people come over every Wednesday. We have dinner and then we watch Mission Impossible and we watch Star Trek. Um, and half the people coming are under 20 and have never seen Star Trek before. And so it's brand new to them. Um, and they are they are experiencing this raw, just like it was. You are listening to Geekdom Empowers, the podcast about people empowered through their geekiness. Welcome back! My name is Guy Hasson, and you are listening to Geekdom Empowers, and holy cow, have I got a special episode for you. Geekdom Empowers is the podcast that highlights creators and fans in the geek world who do not often get to be highlighted. It's these people, it is us, who make up almost all of the geek world by talking to each person, by hearing their stories. Geekdom in Powers creates a huge, giant, world-sized quilt of the geeks all around the world. Each person is a story, and together we are one story, one huge geekverse quilt. So, before I begin, before I tell you about today's guest, I was thinking, I would say, you know, this is uh, a Chinese author, this is an author from uh, Zimbabwe, and I only... And the only times I don't say that is when the guests are from the English-speaking world. So, today's guest comes from the United States. His name is Gideon Marcus, and that reminds me of the times, you know, he used to describe people's colors only when they were not white, because white is not a color, so you automatically assume everybody was white. That was the way it was in books. And that's not right. So, it's not right. From this point on, we're going to say where everybody is from. So, today's guest... He's from the United States. His name is Gideon Marcus. He has a special, special blog called galacticjourney.org. If you are listening to this, you are a geek, and this episode is for you. I don't want to spoil anything. You heard in the beginning uh, some of what this is about, uh, the level of geekiness that we're talking about. I will just say that we go through and geek out through the history of science fiction and fantasy, talk about women and gay science fiction fantasy authors in the 50s and 60s, the right way to watch Star Trek, and so much more, including how Gideon's geekiness created an entire community built around his particular geekiness, which is what this is about. Geekdom empowers. Our geekiness empowers us, our obsession, the the fact that we are experts in one thing that not everyone cares about, but some people care about is what prepares us to actually succeed in the geeky thing which we love. You don't have to be the one writing the books. You don't have to be the one writing the shows. You can do, uh, although Gideon does write uh, and publish books, you can do a blog. You can do a video blog. You can build something on TikTok. You can build something on Instagram. You can find, you can build a community where you are. We had so many guests like that. So... I will spoil nothing. This one is sheer joy. Let's listen. Can you tell me a little bit about all the books behind you? Uh, well, that's my space research self. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's all, all the stuff I use. Uh, a bunch of articles that I got published a while back. And then the two books to the... This direction are books I wrote, and the books over here are the Rediscovery series, uh, the second of which is coming out uh, next week, and that's uh, science fiction by women, all from the 50s and early 60s. Oh, we'll ha- we have to get to that. Let- Should we start with that? Uh, no, let's, let's go. We'll get to it, okay? I want to go chronologically. But before that, I got the impression from the website that has such deep research into the history. I imagine you to be like 75 or 80 years old and you do everything out from memory. Uh, and I, looking at you, I see you are not 75 years old. I am not. 
just I, I was afraid to, to, to insult you in case you were 75 and you looked really young. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 74, but thank right, you. Right, yeah. Uh, so what's your origin story? How did you get to science fiction and fantasy? I started this project offline back in 2009, um, or as, as I generally think of it as 1954. That's when I started reading the science fiction magazines of 1954 month by month as they came out. So in February, I was reading April 8, 1954 issues because the, the publication date is always later. Um, and so it started out just doing that. And then for immersion, I would listen to the radio of the time, or I should say, I listened to the music. I had an AM broadcaster at the time. So I would just put it on and I would, uh, and I would have it as background and I'd watch the movies and I'd occasionally read the papers. And the, the project got more and more immersive because when you experience the past in context, you get a completely different take on it than you do if you, what I call magpie time travel, where you just go from place to place to, to you know, to, to woo Cleopatra or to save John Kennedy or whatever. Um, when you live in the past, you understand all the different references and the, and the same things bother you that, that would bother you today. So, you know, the, the, the treatment of women and people who are not white or Christian, um, you know, those, those are all things that upset people back then, uh, just as they upset people today. Although back then, a lot of times they didn't even have words for the things that bothered them. For instance, before 1965, there was no sexism. Not because there was no sexism, but because there was simply no word for sexism. Um, in 1958 or 2013 to sane people, um, I started a blog, Galactic Journey, and it wasn't even at the current website. And I uh, did that before, because before that, before that, let's. Uh, what did you do? Like, were you into science fiction before you began this journey? Yeah, when I was a kid, my father was a big science fiction fan. He was born in 42 and he actually left me the science fiction magazine collection that ultimately led to the oh. journey. I had all these magazines and I wanted to read them. Um, so I've always been a science fiction fan, uh, but I had not been particularly a fifties science fiction fan. And mm -hmm. I, I'm not doing it because I, I, I think that the fifties and sixties were this golden, better time that we must return to. It's simply the time that I ended up in. Um, but because I'm stuck there, I'm finding all sorts of wonderful things that people have forgotten. Yeah, and I, I want I want to get stuck a bit on uh, on the things that they had no words for. Because lately, uh, recently, I've read I've uh, yeah, you know, Enid Blyton. She had a bunch of she was British, and she has a bunch of adventure books for kids for various ages. And Who is this again? Enid Blyton. She's. Uh, She's a, a British author uh, okay. from decades ago, and she she has she's pretty famous. And and I read those stories when I was a kid. There's a series about five kids, and they have adventures all the time. Very British adventures, exciting and fun. Uh, and those uh, and today, you know, recently when I read those stories to my kids, I noticed I always remember those. There are four boys. You know, I think three boys and two girls, and one of the girls called George insisted she was a boy. Hmm. And you know, we thought it was a trait. But today, I read it and I see, oh, she's 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 trans. She's uh, you know, she has she defines herself as a boy. She wrote that decades ago, right? Uh, and you know, at least when I grew up, there were no words for that in the place where I grew up. Uh, what other kinds of things did you uh, notice? Do you notice? Um, well, there's things we take for granted. Uh, I was reading in the paper today. I read the paper every day. L.A. Times, Chicago Tribune from 55 years ago. I read that uh, oh. Jews are increasingly less excluded from country clubs. So now only 46% of American uh, country clubs exclude Jews, down from 52% from four years ago. Isn't that great? Um, but, uh, the, the point of the journey is not just social consciousness, uh, things I discover. So 
one gets the impression that before Ursula K. Le Guin, there were no women writing science fiction. Or if someone's particularly in the know, someone might know Lee Brackett. They might know Andre Norton. Um, but in general, they don't know anybody from back then. Um, and so to my surprise, in the 50s, by the time I started the project online, I had already cataloged, I think, three dozen women science fiction authors of the time. Um, and, and that was really exciting. Uh, women like, did, did people know they were women? Or was it like so, James Dictree Jr.? You know, so, so some of them wrote under male pseudonyms. Many of them wrote under initials. But I would say a good half of them, particularly the ones who appeared in fantasy and science fiction, would uh, write under their real names. Um, so Catherine McLean started out under her initials, but John Campbell published her under her name. Um, Idris Seabright, I suppose, is a, is, a, uh, is a neutral name, although I think she also published under Catherine McLean around that time, too. Um, but there were, there were plenty of women who were publishing under their own name. Uh, Pauline Ashwell published under both um, Paul Ash and Pauline Ashwell in Analog. Uh, and she's one of my favorite unknown ones. Zena Henderson. Uh, was very big. Um, she was under her own name. And was there a difference in uh, in in the stories in, in the content of the stories? Absolutely. Um, and this is, I mean, we we've gotten about as broad a cross section as we can get because for the second volume of Rediscovery we published, which covers fifty three to fifty seven, we read every single story published by a woman in that time period. There were about four hundred. Wow. Um, and there's there's a, there's a couple of different kinds. Some women would just write pretty straight stories. Uh, some women would write what they call, you know, a diaper science fiction, where it was more concerned with children, with uh, the role of mothers in science fiction. You'd actually have stories with women in them. Um, they tended to write from a perspective because it was different from that of men. It was just they there was just a different feeling to a lot of their stories, not all of them. I mean, some stories you could just throw in a blender and not know uh, the gender of the person writing them, but some of them very definitely were stories that a man just wouldn't write. Um, and that made them refreshing and interesting. Interesting. And John Campbell, I remember, is the one who, who, who got Asimov to, to write about, you know, let's just not say that the aliens are stronger than us. So, you know, all kinds of race stuff. And uh, uh, did he know he was publishing? Like, did he publish women authors? Uh, John Campbell did. You know, John Campbell is much maligned um, and with good reason. John Campbell was in many ways a really annoying, regressive person. <laughs> there's just, there's, there's no two ways about that. Um, that said, he also is, it's, it's become fashionable to hate on John Campbell without really digging into it. And the fact is he did discover quite a number of, of female authors. Uh, there's at least nine women authors in Unknown, which was the fantasy sibling of Astounding in the 30s and 40s. Um, so he had his issues and they're annoying um, and, and more racist and chauvinist than the norm of the time, I would say. Um, but at the same time, he published lots of women um, he and he there were things that appeared in his magazine that were quite excellent that, that buck that bucked the uh, the standard uh, Pauline Ashwell's unwillingly to school and then the lost Kafuzalum are two of my favorite stories um, and uh, um, unwillingly to school is the final novella in our first rediscovery series so and give Campbell credit where it's due in the in the 40s analog was or astounding was the game in town um, it wasn't by the 50s, right? By the 50s, you had galaxy and fantasy and science fiction taking the torch away, uh, and that's how it works. And then by the end of the 50s, you had Sel Goldsmith with her run at Amazing and Fantastic, and that was pretty spectacular. And Sel Goldsmith is someone who doesn't get a lot of credit these days, but really resurrected the uh, the fantasy genre in a lot of ways. So anyway, the, the past is nuanced, I guess, is, is, is the takeaway. But I think sometimes we forget that the past is not only nuanced, but it is it is the same. And and the way you talk about it, like I do think as an author, how how much of 
the things that are popular today are popular because they are in vogue. And if they had been five years ago or five, or five years from now, they wouldn't be. And people would read them. And how, how, how many things get lost because of that? How many things don't get written because of that? And, you know, personally, I have, I'm always, you know, well, actually, <laughs> one side is always winning. Should I like what's uh, involved at work? So should I like things that are internal and evergreen, in my opinion? And hmm. the internal stuff always wins for me. Right. Um, but uh, it's interesting that styles go in and out. And sometimes we get so swept up in the thing that works now, that we forget that it's just something that comes and goes. It's fashion. Right. And it could be really good, but it is still fashion. And you can the, see, uh, yeah. The journey, one of the biggest things I discovered on the journey is how cyclical time is. And 55 years has been a very magically resonant time period, more so than the more convenient 50 years. Um, just you read the headlines from back then and they feel like they were plucked from now up to and including the Russian aggression on the, in Eastern Europe. Um, when I write and I write quite a bit, um, in fact, uh, yesterday was my birthday and a bookseller oh. called to tell me that, uh, Keetra, he'd sold Keetra to the producer of one of the 21st century's biggest science fiction shows. Um, and that was just very exciting, but I, I don't read a lot of modern science fiction, mostly because my dance card is full with, with older stuff. Um, and so my stuff tends to be timeless. Um, I, I don't write for today, immediately today's generation, although I, I do hope to reach kids of today. And luckily uh, my 17 year old daughter is, is on hand to be an audience. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, David Brin taught me something in with his uplift saga keep things vague enough and keep the science vague enough. And then you don't have to worry about being dated by the microfiche used by your heroes. Um, Tom right. Purdom was very good at that too. His, I want the stars. He wrote it in 1964 and it reads like it was written, written yesterday. Uh, Chip Delaney stuff is like that mm -hmm. too. Um, as you say, timeless is timeless. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it's not like we've left the planet or discovered immortality or any of the other canards of science fiction. So all those stories that deal with those things, tend to still be resonant. Um, the only things that have been debunked at this point are things like overpopulation. But on the other hand, there are still places on the planet that are overpopulated and, and we are still taxing our planet's resources. So are they are these stories really out of date or not? Oh, Sean, you know, Frederick Paul, I don't remember which book he wrote about like uh, the earth is getting too warm and we have to be inside domes that, you know, keep everything cool. And now that comes back. What happens if the Earth gets too warm? It's not going to be suddenly too warm by 20 degrees, but you know, it, it's an issue and it comes back. By the way, uh, um, I read a book uh, about New York in, in the beginning of the 20th century. And it is so similar to uh, Asimov's uh, reality that he created in the robot novels mm. in the first one uh, where everything is, is everything's together and everything's tight you had 10 people in a room and everything was like that he wasn't writing about the future he was writing about his past right um, and that was crazy so you can use the past for that so sorry I interrupted you uh, one one last question about uh, John Campbell uh, how did he let the women have female heroes? Well, uh, like I said, Pauline Ashwell's story uh, stars a woman. Not only is it a woman, but she has a woman with a disability. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, that was pretty interesting. Um, analog and Astounding were pretty, I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. They were, it was a pretty stag publication, mostly mm -hmm. men, mostly mostly men stars, mostly men characters. Uh, and that was not unique to analog. That was the genre at the time, for the most part. Again, with the most common exception, fantasy and science fiction. In fact, it's telling that in Rediscovery 2, there are 20 pieces and half of them are from F and SF. 
despite the fact that we had 40 magazines to get stories from. Now, there's a couple of things that make that happen. One, FNSF routinely published more women. Uh, and two, FNSF routinely published some of the best science fiction of the time. So it makes sense that you would mostly find, you would find your, your women writers in FNSF. But I just found that very interesting. You know, it's like two from Galaxy, you know, one from Analog or Astounding. Mm -hmm. um, so. I, I assume they didn't get too many awards though, right? The female uh, authors. Uh, that's, remember the Hugos didn't even exist until the mid fifties and mm -hmm. our, and our time period didn't start until 53. Interestingly enough, um, 53 was a high watermark for women in science fiction. Um, and then they started to decline partly because of, uh, reactionary, uh, attitudes. Um, but also because magazines were starting to go out of business. So there were fewer outlets. But in 1958, three of the uh, best new author uh, nominations for Hugo went to women, uh, Kit oh. Reed, Pauline Ashwell, and Roselle George Brown. Um, Brian Aldiss was also in there. Interestingly, no award won that year. And then after that, um, 58 through 66 is really kind of not a dead zone for women, but it's definitely something of a blight. Uh, Ursula K. Le Guin comes out in that, in that time period. Um, but it's really not until Star Trek and the second wave of feminism uh, that we have uh, women really start to come to the fore again in a big way. And I'm, I'm quite looking forward to that. Okay. I'm going to get stuck on the past. This is a podcast also about, this interview is also about the past. And I get a chance to ask questions. So uh, you said there were reaction, you said there were reactionary uh, um, elements to, to uh, women being published? What, what was that? What happened? Well, I think it's part of, a, it's not just science fiction. It was just part of the, of the culture of the time. After World War II, uh, women had been engaged in the workplace uh, in an unprecedented way uh, because men had gone off to war and some women as well. Um, and then there were lots of women who got into the workplace and did the jobs that were traditionally men's jobs. Um, and after World War II, uh, with the boom of magazine science fiction post-pulp. Um, you had women doing fanzines, you had women in forming their own fan organizations, and you had lots of women publishing. Um, and in the 50s, after the Korean War and all the boys had come home, um, there was a backlash to women being in traditionally male spheres. Uh, 1950 through 1965 was also the peak of the nuclear family concept, which still to in many ways dominates our thinking of the family in the United States, uh, but was really only a fairly short-lived bubble. Um, and so when women were expected to stay home and be the mom, um, there was less room for writing in that. Uh, so, so that's what I mean by reactionary elements. It wasn't just that people were consciously saying, we don't want women in our crowd. Although there's, there's definitely that, like I said, uh, just, as if, just as Jews were actively excluded from social clubs, uh, so were women actively and passively excluded from the provinces of men. And that, that's, that's not a secret. Um, which is the way it was. Uh, okay. And uh, yeah, how many of most of the heroes, this is what I remember, my experience were uh, American, white, male, straight. How many non-straight, non-Americans, non-white uh, heroes do you come across reading those old uh, magazines? In the, in the 50s up to 1967, where I am now. Yeah. Um, so Chip Delaney, Samuel R. Delaney, is the first Black author. Um, I mean, there, there was one who had a story in FNSF, but in terms of making science fiction his career, it's Chip Delaney. Uh, and he started in 63, maybe 62. I can't remember when his first book came out. Um, and he, you know, he came out of the gate brilliant. Um, and he's also queer. So he, right out of the gate, he fills, uh, checks two boxes. Um, before him, there wasn't anybody. Uh, before him, there were a lot of women. Um, there were a couple of queer women. Uh, Joanna Russ was writing by 1958. Um, and she was, she was quite good out of the gate. Um, of course, Arthur C. Clarke is, is famously queer, although nobody, but it, it was not an, uh, well known at the time. Um, 
So, so it exists and who knows, there may be plenty more people, you know, uh, the, the, the guy who wrote the Horatio Hornblower series was, was famously queer um, and couldn't write what he wanted to write and died disappointed. And, and there's a reason why you can read so much gay subtext into the Horatio Hornblower stories. Um, it's because it's there. Um, how many heroes, like how many heroes were not straight or not white or not American? Heroes? Like, yeah, like, like the heroes of the story. Stories? Yeah, uh, virtually none. Uh, Sturgeon had a story in 52, um, which was uh, riffed on by um, God, was it Evelyn Smith. I, now I can't remember. It's in 62, I think. They also serve uh, where you had two gay. It was strongly implied that they were gay and their being gay was the reason why they were able to successfully make first contact. Um, it's not until Samuel R. Delaney's Babel 17. Oh, and also Tom Purdom's I Want the Stars in 64. Um, those are the first stories that had queer people in it. And it was just it was just a fact. It was just there. It was not commented upon. It was not judged. Um, it was simply this is the future. And in the future, there will be gay people just as there are now. But now everyone people will see them and it won't it won't be a deal. It just is. Um, mm. Tom talked about how he included gay people uh, in his books. Uh, and, and polygamy and so forth, because he thought these are things that are known now, but they're not they're not accepted. But in the future, we will have moved beyond that, just like in the early 60s, they were starting to have interracial marriages, um, you know, not long before the 60s, women have the right to vote. So he figured if he put these things that he saw were coming on the horizon and put them in a science fiction story, then it would feel like the future. Um, so. Okay, so now let's get back to you. So you are building now a website. Now we have a website. Yes, uh, galacticjourney.org. Uh, talk, talk, talk us through like what happened. You built the website and then you know what was in it. So what happened was um, my wife, while I was reading all these stories, she said, hey, could you make me a list of your favorite stories? Because uh, then I can read all the good stuff. And I was starting to make a list and I said, you know what, I'm, I'm a writer. Why don't I just uh, make a blog? And I figured I'd get, you know, two to three people reading it. Uh, and, <laughs> and then in 2015, excuse me, or 1960, uh, Charlie Jane Anders blogged about my blog on io9. And all of a sudden I was getting thousands of hits. Uh, and so I realized I had to not have just a dream with blog, but I actually had to have galacticjourney.org. Um, and ever since then, um, I, I wouldn't say we're huge, but we've, we've definitely made a dent. We, we got nominated for the Hugo a few times. Uh, the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation gave us an award for our coverage of Twilight Zone. We covered all the episodes. Um, and the journey just keeps growing. So a lot of people will comment. Often they'll comment in character as if they're living in the 60s with us. Mm -hmm. so some of them are playing their past selves. Uh, and some of them are young people or, or middle-aged people who are pretending. Um, and generally, these people end up getting sucked into the snowball that is the journey. So we've now had, I think, two dozen people writing for us regularly or irregularly. Uh, and we started covering Star Trek in September. Um, we watch Star Trek every Wednesday as it comes out at the original airtime with original commercials in it. Um, oh, how, how are you doing that? Uh, it's a lot of work, <laughs> but every week I, I assemble it. Um, and we even have the shows that came before and after it. Right now it's Daniel Boone and Dragnet 67. Um, and so some people watch it online uh, through Discord. And then we actually have about a dozen people come over every Wednesday. We have dinner and then we watch Mission Impossible and we watch Star Trek. Oh. Um, and half the people coming are under 20 and have never seen Star Trek before. And so it's brand new to them. Um, and they are they are experiencing this raw, just like it was. Um, and ever since we started covering Star Trek, we've gotten at least five or six new people writing for the journey because they all want to have their their say. Yeah. Um, so it's it's really exciting, this contextual experiencing of the time. Well, I, I, I got to ask about Star Trek, because I think watching the original Star Trek is such it, like it's a journey that depends on where you come from because I originally saw it as a kid in the 70s in black and white by the way that's that's what we had 
And it was so scary to me. You know, I had to hide. I watched it, but some parts of it were really scary. I, I remember hiding behind a wall just, you know, in, in really tense moments. And then, uh, like 10 years later, you know, came Picard, the next generation and all that. And I got to see in my early 20s, uh, first of all, there was one episode, like I was, um, and I saw Shatner giving one of his speeches with pauses like that, and super dramatic. And I was watching it in a pub. There was, like I was in uh, London at the time. And, and it was it was really good. And at the same time, it was really funny because it was so different and overdone. And since then, I've seen, you know, a couple of years later, I saw all the episodes again a couple of times and more. And, you know, they were really good. And lately, and then there were a couple of decades where I haven't seen the original episodes. And now I've watched again some of the episodes and I can see how every line in some of the, the old, like in some episodes are so ingrained into me, into my science fiction experience where I recognize every line. Um, and it is better than I remember it when I thought, you know, it was, it was funny and overdone. Uh, so how are the 20-something people, or the under 20-something people, responding to start the original Star Trek? So one of the things that putting the commercials back in does, and watching it with the original effects and everything, and, and with the context of, we watched Mission Impossible, which at the time was Star Trek's sister show. They were filmed next door. They were both Desilu Productions. And often you'd have guest stars hop from one-to-one. -one. Oh. We just saw Spacey, the one with Ricardo Montalban, and that same week, he was the heavy on Mission Impossible. So we had a twofer. We did Cardo Montalban. So <coughs> in real time, at the time, you had like you had him move, like appearing in Mission Impossible and in Star Trek on yes. the same week. Wow. Yes. Uh, they the may not week. have been the first week in in production, but in airing, they were in yeah. the first week. Um, with commercials in the show, first, they give you a contrast, right? You see Star Trek and it's this and it's the show and it's the self-contained universe. And it's, you know, retro futuristic, I guess, from our point of view. Um, and then you have the commercials, which are very much in the 1960s. You've got people smoking. You've got women cleaning, mm -hmm. you know, people, whatever the cereals they had, monkeys commercials. Um, but the other thing <coughs> that commercials do that you lose if you just watch the show is they allow the, the show to breathe. So Star Trek was written as most shows of the sixties were as four act plays uh, with a teaser at the beginning. And each one was designed to end on a mini cliffhanger. And if you resolve the cliffhanger immediately, you lose a lot of that tension or it feels silly and the, and the pace is wrong. But if you have a minute, a minute and a half after each mini cliffhanger to wonder if the Enterprise is going to get out of this particular scrape, it marinates. Um, and interestingly enough, I on the Trek BBS, which is a big Trek forum, I mentioned that I was doing this and other people started doing this themselves. They're, they're, they're stitching together their own commercial episodes of Star Trek and going, you know, what? I kind of like it this way. You have to be insane to do this. Um, but, you know, there, there are fun. There's fun in insanity. I've heard that we geeks are insane on some things, you know. Uh, by the way, speaking of commercial, I don't. Do you know the series Thunderbirds? Yes, With, uh, that that's on our TV station. We actually have a television station that broadcasts around locally over the air on Channel yeah. Nine. Don't come after me, FCC. It's only my house, and uh, and we it's updated every week, so it plays the shows of that week. Uh, and we have oh. the Thunderbirds on. The second season just started coming out. So what the Thunderbirds I remember used to do before and after commercials, you know, the guy was, you, you had a cliffhanger and the guy was stuck in like a battle and the water was coming up to his chin and then you had commercials. And when you came back from the commercials, the water was down here and suddenly <laughs> you had more time. They did that all the time. That's an old tradition. Yes. Okay, so that that is an amazing experience. And what, what are they young people talking about uh, Star Trek? Like, what are they blogging about Star Trek? So, um, I mean, you can see, if you, go to, if you go to Galactic Journey and look, I think uh, 
the latest Star Trek article just came out. Uh, it covered last week's episode, which was Space Seed. Um, give Star Trek credit. So you watch a television show and generally you watch it and then you're done and you go on to the next thing. We watch Mission Impossible and we enjoy it and then we move on. Star Trek invariably provokes an hour of discussion. And so for last time, we were talking about what eugenics really means and did the makers of the show actually denigrate eugenics enough? Um, You know, uh, and, and did they talk about the nuances of eugenics, right? Like there's, there's, it's one thing to say a race of supermen and every, and normal humans are inferior and that's bad. uh, And that, that smacks of Nazism at the same time, you've got the future and are as a course, are we just making babies that have no heart defects or whatever? And is that a bad thing? Um, One of the people was talking, one of the kids was talking about how uh, Khan was a classic psychopath, which is something that was just psychopathy. Psychopathy was something that was just being really understood in the 60s. Um, the discussion, you know, Khan and his way with women and with the men in some ways. And everyone was like, you, um, you know, what, what did that actually mean? And, and was it was it not was it anachronistic to go you or at the time, would you say, oh, no, he's just a virile man's man. Um, and part of the reason why we feel like even at the time people would say you, aside from the fact that, you know, 20, 30 years ago, I was saying you was, uh, Spock throughout the episode with Space Seed is like, gentlemen, why are you, why are you praising this guy who's, you know, a brutal dictator, specious jerk? So the fact that a character was saying what we were feeling means that the writer certainly knew what they were doing. Um, but just the fact that we're talking about this for an hour and it isn't a bunch of kids going, Oh, this is so camp and stupid. They're going, this is a good show. I'm really engaged. And these are my feelings on it. I I think speaks to just how important Star Trek is as a phenomenon. Absolutely. By by the way, did you see the show enterprise? uh, It's last season. Uh, The, the Scott Bakula. Yeah. Uh, That, I watched the first episode, was not particularly impressed and, and checked out. I watched three seasons and gave up on it. Like mm. at the end of the, the end of the third season broke me. And you know, and it was slow and it was bad. And people told me, no, they get their act together in the fourth season. And what happened was well, that's true, you know, as soon as they closed the, 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 the cliffhanger of season three. They in season in the last season, they pulled stuff from all over the Star Trek universe, including Khan, and including, you know, they do stuff before uh, with eugenics and Khan's people who weren't seen on the Enterprise. They have like a few episodes about that. And the other stuff, uh, which I won't mention. Uh, But uh, they get to talk about that again, and they get to do it again in a pretty good way. Uh, in season four. Anyway, okay. So I'll get there in 30 years. <laughs> yes. Um, so you created the website and people suddenly joined you. You had, uh, uh, you know, people were responding to it, which is uh, amazing. And um, so how has that been going? Let's get to the present. Uh, well, we're, we're covering Doctor Who, we're covering Star Trek, uh, we've expanded out, we have a publishing house now, um, we, uh, we, we believe in the philosophy of a few books a year, but they're all really good books, I think we've got four titles a year coming out now, for, and we will for the, for, for the, hist- for the uh, foreseeable future. Uh, I give talks at colleges. I'm uh, going out to uh, Atlanta in May for a microbiology conference. I'm doing a talk called Life is Groovy, Astrobiology in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, we, are, we are covering a very interesting time at the journey. Like I say, things are changing. Um, the, the space race, which is a, a big pillar of our coverage, we started in 58. So at that point, the space race was only a year old. Um, and now we're, we've just had the Apollo 1 tragedy. 
Uh, and we've covered that in a, in a series of articles, uh, both dedicated and then just tangential. Um, but we're about, you know, the moon landing is about to happen in a couple of years. And then, and then space is about to change. And it's going to be a lot different from the way people expected it to be. People thought we'd go to the moon and then we'd go to Mars and so forth. And, and the course is going to be different. And 70s science fiction is going to be different. And Star Trek is going to be off the air and in syndication. Uh, and honestly, I don't know too much about the era. And I've done my best to keep myself uninitiated un, uh, because I want to approach it with, with fresh eyes. One of the things that's been so refreshing about this, this project is when I go through the 50s and 60s, I find all these things I didn't know existed and I enjoy them in a contextual way. Uh, and I want to keep enjoying that. How do you so, get news for the 50s and 60s? Like if, well, you, like I, yeah, if you don't come with knowledge, how do you... So um, there's two main places. So if I want the news news, I've got subscriptions to the LA Times and the Chicago oh, Tribune. Right. Uh, in fact, I do the Tribune crossword puzzle every morning. Um, <laughs> the LA Times one is too hard. Uh, and I, I'm probably more up to on uh, 55 years ago events than I am today, uh, although they, they still read very similarly. We don't have a pandemic in 67, but we are sending tens of thousands of American boys to die in Vietnam. Um, but in terms of fan news on fanac.org, F-A-N-A-C dot O-R-G, they have an amazing repository of fanzines. Um, and you, I read those as they come out every month too. So I, I feel like I know all of these people. Um, and what's fun is I actually do know some of these people. Uh, I know uh, Alexei Panchian. I know Tom Perdom. I knew Kit Reed, uh, before she passed away. Uh, I know the M. Schwillers. Um, I, I, I know a lot of the, the people. And so uh, it's really interesting to like, say, hey, I just read this thing in the fanzine yesterday. Do you remember this? Uh, John Boston is one of the people who writes for The Journey. Uh, and he's officially lapped himself. He was actually a big name fan in the 60s. Now, he's got letters in analog in the issues we're reviewing. Um, so that's really fun. So by reading all that stuff, I have, a, I have access to an archive of every single Trek zine that exists um, in the 60s. We just started reading uh, Vulcanalia. Uh, so by doing that, I'm actually pretty much in tune with the time in terms of, of being a fan. You are more than in tune because people didn't have the internet. They didn't have access to many things at the same time. Where is that uh, Star Trek fanzine? So the Star Trek fanzine archive I, is, is private. I, I can't share that, although I have been sharing snippets of it uh, on the Trek BBS. Um, but the fanzine archive is at fanact.org. And what kind of books do you publish? Like, talk about the decision to create, uh, to become a publisher. So that was, that was pretty easy. In 2018, I met a guy who was republishing an old book of, uh, by a science fiction author that he liked. And I realized just how easy it was to become a publisher. And I used to, I used to run big businesses. So it, it seemed like it was something I could do. Uh, and then, so I cast about and looked for a project that would be fun to start with. And I realized there were all these stories by women that had been forgotten, but they were great stories. So that's how Rediscovery, the first volume came out. Um, and then I had a book. I'm like, well, well, we'll publish my book. It's in the, it's in the vintage style, although it's definitely 21st century. Um, and, uh, and that one did really well, despite the pandemic. Uh, and then Tom uh, was a friend of mine. And I said, hey, can I republish I Want the Stars? He said, sure. That's actually been doing quite nicely. Uh, and then uh, we had got started getting more authors. We published The Eighth Key. We published uh, At First Contact. Those are romance slash genre books. Uh, and we've got some more authors coming in. And then we just have come out with the second rediscovery volume. We republished Sybil Sue Blue uh, with a 55-year anniversary edition. Um, I know uh, Rizal George Brown's son. Um, so mm -hmm. the, the, the main purpose of Journey Press is to rediscover these lost classics and also to publish interesting, unique, and diverse stuff today. Um, and I would say the majority of our authors identify as some variety of queer uh, and a lot of the stuff we publish has queer themes or women's stars or both. Um, and that's been our niche. And we've done really well. Uh, our, our, we don't do a lot of internet stuff. I wish I, I knew how to do internet stuff, but I'm not really big on social media. So we actually work through physical bookstores. 
And, uh, and that's actually been really fun. I, I'd say we've got 150 bookstores in this country that, uh, that, that stock all of our stuff consistently. Uh, and the majority of the bookstores in this country have carried at least one or more of our titles. And that's, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, it's amazing. And hold on, talk about your writing. What are you writing? So um, I started in short fiction. And the main reason I wrote short fiction was twofold. Uh, one, because when I grew up, that's what you did, right? It, it, there were all these magazines. I, I was covering these magazines. I wanted to be in these magazines I was covering. Uh, and the other thing was, you know, those who can do and those who can't critique, right? And I, I felt like I didn't have the right to say that somebody else's work stunk um, unless my work was out there and people were saying that it stunk. Uh, so, so I worked really hard uh, and I've now had, I've now had five pieces published um, and, uh, and aside from my books. Um, and so now I feel like, okay, I, I'm legitimate. I'm actually a science fiction author. Um, and they run the gamut. I will say the one thing I don't do, uh, recent publication in Dark Matter notwithstanding, is I don't do dark. Um, I think there's plenty of dark and dystopian. I really mm. prefer hopeful, optimistic, aspirational science fiction. Um, so the Kitra saga is a YA space adventure in the tradition of the old style Norton and Heinlein juveniles. Um, they're designed for all ages, but they're designed to be accessible to young people. The science is accurate, but also as accessible as possible. Um, and there's no villain. There's just obstacles to overcome in this found family group of people, um, young people doing it, you know, in a starship beyond the stars, doing cool things. Um, and the, the lead character is a, a queer woman of color, um, but that's incidental. That's just part of the, who she is. Um, and people have really praised both the, the story and the diversity of the cast. Uh, and they also just like how fun it is. And the cool thing about the books is they're illustrated. So um, hmm. because I grew up reading all these science fiction magazines and they all had these wonderful illustrations by by Schoenherr and Kelly Fries and so forth. Um, so I, I wanted to have that, too. So I've published two books in the series so far, Kitra and Sirena. Um, and uh, I just finished part one of the third book in the series, Havilma, and that's going to come out in March of 2023. Nice. It's so cool. You know, you're doing the thing you love. You know, this is, I could give them in pals to show people if you do your geek thing, you can become, you know, you can, it can empower you. You know, you can own your life. And it seems that you're doing that. Well, and, and I just want to say that for those of you watching this, the reason I'm on this program today is a few years ago, I reviewed the collection Zion's Fiction, which was a collection of Israeli science fiction. Um, and my favorite story in that collection was The Perfect Girl by the person I'm talking to right now. <laughs> and uh, I enjoyed it so much that the other day I wrote to Guy and said, hey, I loved your story. And he said, would you like to be on the show? So I'm very honored to be here. Um, and I, I guess I'm just trying to say that when you do what you're passionate about, then the, the quality comes through and other people become excited about what you do. Oh, that's a good lesson. It also works the other way around. Someone wrote to me that he liked my stuff and my story and he had a link and I clicked on the link and I saw a really cool website. So I said, you should come on the show. And then we had this great conversation. Um, that's great. <laughs> uh, is there anything that uh, you wanted to talk about you think we should talk about that we didn't cover? Uh, I think we've done a pretty good job. I, for people who are new to old science fiction and are wondering where to start and want to go beyond, God help me, you know, Dune and Stranger in a Strange Land, which are not the best representatives of the time. Um, the Journey every year has a post called the Galactic Stars. And if you go to galacticjourney.org forward slash tag forward slash galactic dash stars, or just do a search for galactic stars at galacticjourney.org, um, you will find our annual wrap up of all the best science fiction of the year of all lengths and all media. Uh, in fact, we just started covering comic books uh, or giving comic books awards. We've been covering comic books for years, but now we're actually giving them awards. Um, and because we have such a broad team, 
we literally read every single thing and watch everything that comes out. So if you just want a grab bag sample of all the best of the 60s, uh, come to Galactic Journey, read the stuff. We have links to where you can buy it if it's commercially available, borrow it if it's not, um, and, and enjoy. That is so cool. I hope that people leave with the feeling I'm living with, you know, it's just the beginning. There's so much information at the website, in every blog I, at the website. There's so much to talk about and so much to cover, but that's the thing you do. So we should just go to the website. Um, so where can people find you? So you can find the website at galacticjourney.org for Galactic Journey. You can find the publishing house at journeypress.com. Um, and you can find me almost exclusively on Twitter. Uh, Facebook is awful, although I occasionally will repost stuff there. Um, but Twitter, I, I'm on it sufficiently that if you find me there, I will say hi. Uh, we have presences at, at Press Journey, at Journey Galactic, uh, and at Gideon Marcus 9. Um, and any one of us will eventually, any, any one of those will eventually get to me. Thank you so much to Gideon Marcus. That was a trip, certainly for me. I hope it was for you. You can find Gideon Marcus and all his galacticjourney.org links in the show notes. And do check out the website. Now, next time, because there's always a next time, always another geek. Next time, we delve deep into German science fiction with another great episode. So stick around for that. What did you think about this episode? Email me at guy.hasson at geekdomimpals.com. The website is geekdomimpals.com on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. We're at geekdomimpals. If you want to check out my other podcast, The Squash Buckler Diaries, that is an experiment in uh, epic fantasy. Unlike anything you've ever heard or seen, uh, and whatever you imagine when you hear that, it's not that. So feel free to check that out, The Squash Buckler Diaries podcast. I will see you next time, and for now, have an empowered day.